Welcome to Tzarech Iyun, a podcast from Yeshivat Oraita. Listen in as two Rebbeim reflect with one another on current events and unpack central Hashkafic questions that affect how they view the world. A forum for diversion perspectives informed by both study and lived experience, these conversations will illuminate a handful of the Shivin Panima Torah and scratch the surface of ideas which may in fact require further exploration. everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Tzarech Iyun podcast brought to you by Shivat Oraita. My name is David Silverstein and today I have the honor of being joined by the renowned economist, the host of the Econ Talk podcast, research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, president of Shalem College, and most importantly for our community, the father of three wonderful Oraita alumni, Russ Roberts. Russ, thank you so much for coming on the Tzarech Iyun podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. So we're we're currently uh, situated about five weeks or so uh, after the horrific incidents of October seventh. Uh, the war is is progressing. Uh, there was an enormous rally yesterday uh, in America in support of Israel. Three hundred thousand Jews, really an incredible uh, scene, and really gave I think a lot of strength to many Israelis seeing the support coming from overseas. Um, I think since the beginning of the war, um, unfortunately, we've seen that um, anti-Semitism as a public form of expression has unfortunately become acceptable in many parts of the Western world. Um, a few examples, you know, one of them is in Australia. Uh, there are people who are screaming gas to Jews, right, right outside of the Sydney Opera House. Um, in England, you had thousands, hundreds of thousands of people marching through the streets, you know, without any shame chanting, you know, from the river to the sea, which obviously everyone understands what the implications of that are. Um, at the universities across the U.S., there have been all types of examples. I think one of the most glaring was at GW when you had the projection of giant signs on the so- signs at the side of the building saying, you know, glory to our martyrs. And um, you wrote a really important piece uh, through your sub- through your Substack called The Dilemma of the West. So I'm curious if you could just begin by sort of maybe um, anchoring this conversation of public anti-Semitism and the comfort to which, you know, people feel expressing it and, you know, communities and societies feel accepting it. Within the larger question of like, what does it mean to live in the West? What does it mean to be committed to free speech? Maybe we really just try to highlight for us what exactly is the dilemma of the West right now? Well, thank you, Rabbi. It's great to be here. I, it's a very complicated and challenging issue to talk about, which is why I call it the, the dilemma of the West. I think most people who live in an open society at least pay lip service to free speech. I actually believe very deeply in it. I think it's incredibly important, especially in educational settings like here at Shalom College or on American college campuses. Uh, that uh, free speech in America has taken a hit in recent years. Obviously, there are a lot of campuses where certain kinds of speech are tolerated, others are not, where people are uncomfortable expressing themselves. Um, and that's all before October 7th. So October 7th comes, and now we have people who, I think there's a whole range of behaviors that we might talk about. There are people, say, who write things that are frightening or hateful, and they put them on a sign, or they send a letter to the editor. There are people who uh, join groups that have violence 
as their goal, say, against the state of Israel, the Jews who live here. And then there are uh, random statements that people make in classroom settings or in social settings on campus or socially in other gatherings. And uh, finally, there are large groups of people who go outside and mill around and sometimes intimidate people physically. And the line between that's an opinion and we should respect it because the West is built on disagreement, intellectual discourse, sharing of ideas, the give and take of, of debate. The line between the sharing of ideas and the advocacy of not just political opinions, but threats, intimidation, coercion, and then finally violence is that line is not easily drawn. And so we've seen in the last few weeks, the struggle that college campuses have had and it, the nation has had in America and elsewhere, England, Australia, as you mentioned, how, how do we draw that line? Do we stand, if you look at the videos say of the Sydney Opera House rally, which was can we quote pro-Palestinian rally, nothing wrong with usually in the West, people being pro-Palestinian, that's a, a legitimate political position to take. But then they're saying gas the Jews. And you can see the policeman standing on the steps watching this gathering, just like you could see on the streets of London when people were waving uh, jihad flags and ISIS flags and the policemen don't do anything. Uh, and I get it. It's not easy to do something. There's not very many of them, the policemen, and there's a lot of the other people. And what do you, how do you how do you deal with that? So that's one issue. How is it that where do we draw the line between speech that is um, protect should be protected and speech that we might say is advocates or condones or justifies violence? I think the other challenge that we have to think about is. Uh, not my insight, I forget who said it. You know, it's not the speech, it's that people think those things are true or, or, or worth advocating. And in a Western open society, if you ban that speech, if you stop that speech, if you shut down those rallies, if you close the campus organizations that have a violent tone or explicitly violent uh, goal, what do you do about the fact that you've got people on your college campus who feel that way? Uh, do you just hope it lays below the surface? Uh, do you, uh, this is a problem. And, and, I, and the last thing I'll say is that I, I used to believe that free speech should be inviolable, meaning there are no exceptions. And, and in particular, the more unattractive the speech, the more important it is to allow it to be heard. But I, I was, a long time ago, a friend of mine, Tom Palmer, works for the Cato Institute and the Atlas Network. Tom told me his argument, his view was that if you're part of a group that would take away free speech from others, you should not be allowed to take advantage of that protection in an open and free society. So Nazis, uh, Soviet-style communists, I don't know how he feels about Hamas 
supporting organizations, but these are organizations, these are movements, these are ideologies that are fundamentally totalitarian. <laughs> Their goal is to rule with an iron fist and to prevent other people from expressing their opinion. So do you allow them to advocate for that, knowing that if they are successful, they will take away the freedoms that the rest of the people in their society enjoy? So I think those are sort of the issues that that I think are very, they're not easy. I have my own answers, but not everybody I think comes to the same answer. And to, to sort of pull them together, I think, when a Western society has within it people who are who do not share the cultural and uh, political values of of openness and of tolerance and of free speech, how do you handle the fact that they will often use those freedoms to advocate for things that are inimical to to freedom, inimical to the tolerance and openness of of, of the West and of America? Um, not, those are not easy questions. One of the words you used uh, just in, in responding was the word intimidation. And this is also something that you address in your piece. And you reference a memoir by someone named uh, Stephen Zweig, uh, which is called The World of Yesterday, um, which describes basically the sort of intellectual, cultural world of Vienna after World War I and tries to sort of make sense to, tries to make sense of the rise of Hitler right after World War I. And the way you describe it in your piece is that um, you know, Zweig ar argues that one of the tools that the Nazis used in terms of you know, making their sort of horrific ideology more popular and more, and more sort of mainstream was simply to sort of intimidate opponents and to try to uh, mitigate uh, the possibility that people would be protesting publicly the Nazi regime uh, safely without feeling intimidated. Um, to give a contemporary application of this, I, I saw that uh, there was a, 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 a some type of prayer protest in Teaneck, New Jersey, right? Not exactly you know, a place which we assume to be very much a thriving Jewish community. And they were, I think, davening Mariv and maybe singing some like, you know, campfire songs in support of Israel. And then you had a huge group of uh, pro-Palestinian supporters who came very close to where they were just praying and just started to yell, you know, Allah Akbar and other themes with the goal of just trying to intimidate them. So I'm curious if you could just address for a few minutes specifically this type of speech, right? Because beyond sort of like the legal questions or the moral questions or the educational questions of like what types of speeches are okay, I think one of the things that I struggle with, I'm sure you struggle with this also, is, you know, oftentimes the people on the receiving end of these hate speeches feel intimidated. I mean, we have students who are anxious now about wearing a yarmulke in public. They're anxious about going to rallies. So if if speech even is technically OK by kind of the formal letters of the law, if the goal is intentionally to intimidate. Right. Well, does that fit under the same rubric that it's sort of by definition problematic because it's trying to stifle the very same free speech that we hold so dear? Yeah. And I think, you know, it, you give one example. There's also uh, the Sydney Opera House. I found it deeply disturbing that in advance of that Palestinian pro-Palestinian rally. Um, the police told Jews, don't, don't come near the Sydney Opera House. Basically saying, we can't protect you. Uh, there was a large Palestinian rally on Shabbat in Brooklyn a few weeks ago. It was held at the Brooklyn Museum. Uh, and 
on Eastern Parkway, about a mile from Chabad headquarters. And same thing, police said, Jews, don't go near it. It's like, th that's anathema to the idea of a free society that you should be comfortable going wherever you want. Um, and the, the ripping down of posters, which is, you know, I, I, it's a very, that's a very complicated uh, issue for me. We can maybe talk about it if you want, but there's a violence to it often. And occasionally there's violence in, in response. People, you know, trying to stop people from tearing them down physically. We don't, I don't, I don't think that's healthy. And let's go back to, um, let's go back to Zweig for a minute. Zweig is, um, is a cosmopolitan. He's an artist. He's a, one of the great writers of his time. Uh, I had never heard of him until a couple of years ago. I would encourage listeners to read that book, The World of Yesterday. The, the part about the Nazis and the rise of Hitler is actually quite small. It's quite, it's a very small part of the book. The rest of it is about the artistic world he lived in, the musicians, the artists, the writers. It's utterly fascinating and how that world disappeared with the rise of the Nazis uh, and, and how the Weimar Republic was you know, grossly inadequate in responding to the kind of things we're talking about now. But what he talks about in that book is that intimidation and violence. He, he tells a story of a, some kind of political rally. I can't remember who was who had organized it. And he says that, you know, a couple trucks pulled up. Uh, a bunch of Nazis jumped out of the, at the time, you know, this is early, mid-30s. Um, or maybe, yeah, I'd say, not mid-30s, excuse me, before Hitler, uh, the rise of Hitler in 33. So probably sometime in the early 30s, 31, 32. They jump out of the truck. They have uh, uh, weapons clubs, truncheons, whatever else they had. And they jump out of the truck, just a handful of people. And they beat up. They don't kill. They don't assassinate, murder, etc. They just make a bunch of people really un uncomfortable. They beat up a bunch of people and they jump back in the truck and leave before the police can show up. And that has a chilling effect when your opponent is willing to use violence or just the threat of violence it has a chilling effect. And again, the example of the taking down of the posters, uh, if you thought standing in the way of the terror down of the posters might put you in the hospital, you're less likely to stand in the way. And I think um, a lot of people are correctly intimidated by advocates for violence, uh, either here in the Middle East or against Jews generally. And so in a way, there's a certain, um, I think of it as boiling the frog. You know, you turn the, the water starts out warm and the frog is enjoying the warm water. And by the time this frog realizes that it's going to be boiling, it's too late. And so the, the level of violence intimidation gets ratcheted up slowly. So like right now, you know, it was a horrible tragedy a week or so ago, a, a pro-Israel protester got killed and we don't know all the details but someone who disagreed with him struck him maybe he fell down he hit his head i don't know what we don't know exactly what happened i don't know full the full details but you know that's one and you can say to yourself well and like 
oh, well, a, a dozen, two dozen people yelled something in, in the middle of a prayer service in Teaneck. I mean, let's, these are just, this is not 1938. This is not Kristallnacht. This is just, oh yeah, there was that guy, was that coffee shop in New York where the, all the baristas quit because the guy was donating money to Israel. And there was the, the Jews from Detroit who tried to get to the rally yesterday and the bus drivers heard it was for Israel, so they didn't take them. So these, I mean, come on, let's not overreact would be a natural response to these events. I mean, these are things that 10 years ago, you would say, well, that's not gonna happen in America. Well, it's happening. And we, but there's a natural reaction. And this is very much uh, similar to what happened in Nazi Germany. I don't wanna suggest in any way that America's on the road to being Nazi Germany, it's wildly different. But what's not different is that role of intimidation. So if you go back you know, to Nazi Germany, the Jews and the sensible non-Jews who had no love for Hitler, remember he came to office democratically, but with a minority because of the nature of the uh, German uh, political system, they all said, this guy's not gonna, I mean, this is never gonna happen. This guy's not gonna be able to really get any real power. He's a, he's a crazy loser. And there's a natural tendency, I think, to ignore the boiling of the frog. You know, it's like at any one time, you can convince yourself that it's not horrible until it's too late. So I think, I don't think America's on the road to Nazism at all. I don't think anti-Semitism in America right now is anything remotely threatening to the safety of the Jewish people. But, but it's alarming. And the question is, what's the arc? What's the trend? And the unwillingness to stand up for principles because, well, it's really not that bad, is a very dangerous trend. I'm going to give one more example, then I'll, I'll let you talk, Rabbi. Uh, you may have seen this, what happened at MIT the other day. A group of students blocked the entryway to campus. There's a main building, a hallway, basically, that people go through to get onto the quad or the main area of the campus at MIT in, in, in Cambridge, in, in Massachusetts, outside of Boston. And there were, it had a political theme. It was anti-Israel or pro-Palestine. And again, whatever you want to call it, doesn't matter. But there were Jewish students there, and it was a little bit, it was confrontational, as often is the case. Um, and the university announced that this was inappropriate, that this building was being blocked, and people should leave and leave it alone and let people enter freely. So the Jews left. The pro-Israel people left. The anti-Israel, pro-Palestinian, whatever you want to call them, they did not leave. They stayed. They flaunted, flouted, flaunted, flouted. They flouted the regulation or the, the decree, and they said, no, no, we're not leaving. So the university thought, well, that's not right. You know, we have a rule. You violated it. And they decided to suspend some of those students. Well, it turned out that if they were suspended, they would lose their visa and be deported. And instead of saying, well, that's probably a good idea, <laughs> they instead said, oh, that would be kind of tough. That would be hard. We, we can't suspend them. We'll just, we'll just give them a slap on the wrist. We'll say, you should have done that. Please don't do it again. The group then held a rally the next night where they uh, celebrated the fact that they had intimidated the university. 
And then the university did something. I haven't kept up with it. They did some partial suspension or maybe something that could keep the people from being deported. I don't know what happened, but that's disastrous. Um, that's um, the failure to stand by your principles, uphold the rules that are necessary to sustain open discourse in a world of heterogeneous opinion and 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 peoples, it's really a bad, bad precedent. So I think those kind of things are alarming. For the most part, if you look at like reactions of Jews uh, to the you know different intimidation tactics, uh, for the most part, I mean, obviously there could be exceptions. So for, for the most part, the reactions have been nonviolent and I think non-confrontational. Um, I, I had seen a video, which you also referenced in your piece, of this construction worker uh, who sees uh, somebody tearing down uh, the signs of the hostages in Gaza. And he does something, uh, he, he, he confronts him physically, right? He confronts him directly. He uses vulgar language, you know, very emotional language to describe what he per perceives to be the moral travesty. And uh, th this video went viral, at least in my Twitter world. And uh, what, what I found fascinating about it was, it was sent to me by all different types of Jews from sort of across the Jewish spectrum, denominationally, religiously, et cetera. And what I found so fascinating about it was, I don't know many people, many of my Jewish friends, right, who have done the exact same thing. But those same friends of mine, and I include myself in this group, who are more pacifist by nature and less confrontational. So even though we probably wouldn't have done it, or maybe we wouldn't have done it, we were super proud and excited that somebody else did it. Right, that somebody else sort of stood up to the injustice going on in the streets of New York. I remember when I was younger, I, I know Yossi Klein Alevi is such an important writer um, and commentator. You know, he's, he's famous now for all of his recent books. But I, I, rem I read a book of his when, he was, when I was much younger called Memoirs of a Jewish Extremist. And it's an amazing book because I'm not in any way a Kahanist and I certainly don't support the ideology of the JDL. But, you know, in a certain sense, there are times in your life where you feel like, well, wait a second, maybe these sort of tough guy Jews, you know, are on to something. And maybe we need to be a little more vocal, a little more forceful in our reactions and not, you know, sort of be OK with just responding to intimidation by, you know, appealing to universities. And it goes against our nature in a very deep way. Um, I'm curious if you think on some level, you know, part of the tension here is that you have people who are using bully tactics and they know, at least, you know, subconsciously, the response they receive to these bully tactics, these intimidations, are going to be very procedural, very legal. And I'm certainly not advocating by any means that Jews should start, you know, swinging fists and taking blows. But I do think there's some tension here built into the equation, right? That one side is willing to use certain tactics, the other side, for the most part, is not. And unfortunately, that actually may facilitate more but then it raises the question, well, what's the solution, right? Should we be going out there? Someone sent me a video of Black Hebrews. Again, Black Hebrews are a complicated group. But someone sent me a video of Black Hebrews responding to a pro-Hamas rally in Chicago by physically, you know, they were being assaulted and they responded in kind. Now, again, I'm not advocating that. I'm just trying to highlight the tension and the dissonances here in terms of what you describe as a dilemma of the West, or in this case, a dilemma of the Jewish community, right? How do we maintain our, our civility at the same time acknowledging that this is a complicated story? Well, first thing I want to say is that the way that most people have responded, I think, to the, the violence of, and it's very mild violence because it's not against human beings, literally, physically, but the tearing down of the posters Again, I think it has a slightly violent aspect to it, but 
it has it it displays a willingness to do to act uh, that I think is somewhat intimidating. The way that most people have responded to it is take a picture of this person and try to get them canceled, get them fired, uh, get them uh, blacklisted, say by Jewish firms or other firms that don't want people like that. I really don't like that at all. Uh, I think that's a terrible response by the community. Um, I just think that's a mistake. But that's what what's happened. Um, that's the way, the procedural way, that you, in a way, a, a kind of a procedural response that you're talking about. The construction worker who confronted the person and from New York, uh, in the New York one, uh, what was interesting about is that he explicitly tells the guy, I'm not a Jew, <laughs> which is just part of the reason I think it went viral. Um, and then he he doesn't touch the other person. He does use bad language and 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 threaten him implicitly and, and actually pretty close to explicitly at one point. But he also uses his body language to show a willingness to stand up to the guy. And when I saw that, actually, I thought about the JDL, the Jewish Defense League, because I'm older than you. I remember it. It was an organization that was a militia-like organization that sprang up on the streets of New York to defend especially old elderly Jews who were vulnerable to street crime that at the time was simply not being stopped by, by the police. It was not, I don't think it was a hate, so-called hate crime or racist or anti-Semitic. It may have been, but it was mostly just the police were not able to protect Jews. So we're going to stand up and protect our people. And uh, a lot of my Israeli friends, not a lot, uh, one, okay, one. <laughs> I have an Israeli friend who said, we need to bring that back. We need to start training Jews in America how to stand up for themselves. Let's teach them self-defense. Let's teach them how to handle a gun, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's not an ideal solution, uh, obviously. It makes me very uncomfortable. I might, I suspect, make you uncomfortable. But it, um, it might be necessary in a world where the police either don't want to intervene in the kind of examples we were giving earlier, or literally are unable to. They're not sure what the rules are. Uh, there are, again, many examples where there's not a literal violation of the law. It's not assault. It's not physical. It's just the threat of it. It's a angry or bullying crowd. And that's uh, that's very, could be very powerful. Now, you asked me something else at the end of that. You gave another example. Do you remember? Yeah, I mean, the example is the Black Hebrews, right? This sort of is a similar model. In other words, Black Hebrews are a complicated group, but it's just this right. idea that what seems to be is going on is that, you know, because Jews are oftentimes resistant to confront, I mean, obviously I'm generalizing, but for the most part. So you have people taking advantage of the situation. In fact, that construction worker, I, I saw an interview where he was interviewed, you know, after the fact. Yeah. And, you know, he basically said, I'm, I'm not a hero. I'm just an ordinary guy doing the right thing. It reminded me of, you know, Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind, right? That, you know, sometimes, you know, you, know, you go to universities and people start to quibble. Well, you know, is it violence? Is it not violence? You know, you know, is it an active thing or is it a passive thing? Whereas, you know, I'm not sure, you know, what this construction worker's academic training is, but for him, it's intuitive. You know, you have somebody who's trying to take down signs of kidnapped babies. Well, that deserves a defense. Yeah. Right. So, you know, looking at and, that, I was thinking to myself, what's going on here? And I, th I think we also have to be aware. I don't know if it's true for you, but I, I'll confess it's true for me. Um, 
that video of of the construction worker standing up to the defacer of of posters was very satisfying. It wasn't just that's a good idea or maybe that's a way we could respond. It was like, well, finally somebody quote did the right thing, and um, that's very dangerous. I think we should we should admit it and concede it. Um, I remember being in high school. Happened to be in Israel. I was here as a in my junior year of high school. My dad's company sent my dad here, and we moved here for uh, it turned out eight months. We thought we we're going to be here longer, but I'm I'm in the um, I'm in the American International School in Kfar Shmariahu, 1971, and we played some Israeli high school in basketball. Now we were Israeli, but not really because we were most of us were American, and um, it was a very physical game. And after the game, when the two teams sort of inadvertently mingled coming out of the gym, uh, a little brawl broke out, shoving and pushing because of how physical the game had been and a feeling that on um, probably on both sides that they'd been taken advantage of. And I, you know, I'm five, six. I am not a strong person. And I, I don't know if I've been in a fight since third grade. Uh, well, I was in one maybe in sixth grade for a few minutes. <laughs> it's like I'm not a violent physical person. But I remember in that moment when the crowd realized there was a fight, and I started to head toward the fight, which is not my natural inclination. My natural inclination is to move away from violence. But I experienced in that little small, that moment, a little small taste of what we, you know, what's called a mob psychology, the the visceral human lust for vengeance, uh, justice, and it's not procedural. And so when I watch, and I think for many people watching that construction worker bullying a bullier, uh, it's like, yeah. And I think that human urge is a very dangerous urge. Uh, I'm not sure we want to harness that with the JDL or 2.0 or any uh, uh, entrepreneurial efforts by us as individuals to, to respond. But having said that, if we don't, and if no one does, and if the police don't, we're gonna be in trouble. And that is, I think, another dilemma of the West. I, I'll, I'll recite a, a terrible poem, terrible in the sense of what it, forces you to face. It's only um, two lines. It's by Hiller Belloc, British poet. Pale Ebenezer thought it wrong to fight, but Roaring Bill, who killed him, thought it right. And um, in a dangerous world, you have to be willing to fight sometimes. I mean, Israel, Israel's response to October 7th is still in process. A number of people have told me, which is amazing how that anyone feels this way, but they do, that Israel's response should have been non-military. Israel should have improved its surveillance and monitoring of the border and not responded in any way other than that, other than maybe negotiate for the return of the hostages, swapping uh, prisoners, 
Hamas and others prisoners for the hostages and just prevent a second October 7th by better uh, surveillance and monitoring, as opposed to trying to deter it through punishment and violence and what we're doing right now. It's an interesting argument. It might even be a good argument. It's not what most human beings feel in their heart. And um, of course, what we feel in our heart can be counterproductive. It can lead to unintended consequences, could radicalize another generation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The world's a complicated place. But I think um, many of us, certainly Israel is facing it now, and I think Jews in other places are going to have to face the question uh, of what to do. What are the, the these unpleasant uh, responses that we're talking about may be the best responses we have. And that is, uh, it's very depressing. Let me say one more thing. When I wrote that essay uh, about the dilemma of the West and the position Jews find themselves in, and I made the reference to the Zweig book that we talked about earlier, The World of Yesterday, uh, a non-Jew wrote me and said, here's why it's different now. What's different now is that Jews have friends who will stand by you. And I think to a large extent that is true in many parts of the West. Uh, other people who are not Jewish do not like what's happening on the streets in front of the Opera House uh, on London Bridge, and they will stand up. But will they stand up at the risk of their own life? Will they stand up? It's hard to do, understandably. So we're in for a very interesting time. You mentioned before uh, the view of your friend Tom Palmer, right, who has this idea that basically um, he's obviously a big proponent of free speech, but he thinks that uh, organizations, right, whose sort of whole mantra is to deny free speech to others, right, should themselves be deprived or have that right, and their free speech rights should be limited. Um, in addition to being a podcast host and a scholar at Stanford, you run a university, the president of Shalim College in Israel, and, and obviously this issue has become increasingly relevant in the context of campus culture. Obviously, the university is a place, especially liberal arts universities like Shalem, where ideas reign supreme. And, you know, it's all about engaging in dialogue and sophisticated conversation about the world of ideas. Uh, I'm curious if you think that uh, there should be a specific strategy uh, employed by universities. You know, a lot of the conversation we've been having up until now has been broadly speaking about how should society manage the question of free speech versus hate speech and sort of how do we manage individual rights versus protecting those who could be impacted by those uh, given rights. I'm curious if you think that there's something unique about the university setting, um, you know, because on the one hand, the university setting is a space where in the context of the classroom, you know, any idea goes, so to speak. But uh, do you think outside the classroom or maybe some other framing of it, do you think that there should be some pretty serious limitations? And would you sort of default back to the view uh, of your friend uh, Tom Palmer, that maybe even in universities, organizations or groups whose whole purpose is to deny the rights of others, well, those organizations should be told if you want to have a seminar, well, we could talk about these things, but you can't have rallies, you can't have clubs, and those spaces are limited to the people who actually do respect uh, open dialogue. I'm curious if you have any thoughts specifically about that about that that issue. So here at Shalem College. Um... We have a very strong culture that the classroom is not a place for political advocacy. 
it's a place for respectful conversation. Our courses are typically not all, but many of our courses are taught in small seminars where students are sharing and exploring, sharing ideas, exploring a text, grappling with tough questions that often have no clear answer. Uh, but they're talking typically about things like Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics or a play by Shakespeare's King Lear or uh, The Odyssey by Homer. And although I might disagree with your inter interpretation of say chapter seven, uh, I'm usually not gonna feel that my identity is at stake, or my religious identity say, or my sense of self, where I will have trouble being respectful of your opinion. But you know that's the ideal. And certainly when you talk, think about history and literature generally, uh, a lot of people think it's all political. And so certain political themes belong in that conversation. And here at Shalem, we've been successful uh, so far, a couple exceptions that we quickly explained that were not appropriate, but we've been very successful in making sure that, that the classroom is a place of respectful civil discourse. Um, now, in many American universities, the classroom is a place of political activism. It's not exploring what the Odyssey, what did Homer really mean in chapter seven? It's about using chapter seven to advance a particular ideological or political agenda. Uh, the humanities have become highly politicized in, in the West and certainly in America. And so those questions I think are much tougher there because uh, there is an underlying political or ideological theme that runs through much of those classrooms and experiences. And I think that's why they've struggled to maintain this respect for free speech that that we've been uh, that I would celebrate and I would champion and I think is is incredibly important. I would just add that uh, political discourse in Israel is um, not exactly the an exemplar of uh, civil discourse. The Knesset has some very dark moments where people speak very disrespectfully about each other. And I believe deeply that it is important that future generations of Israeli thought leaders and political leaders maintain a respect for people who don't agree with them. Uh, so I think what we're trying to do here at Shalem is extremely important, not just for quality education, but for leadership in the future of this country. Um, now about those, then the, then the question is, what, what about outside the classroom? Uh, what about the clubs? What about uh, rallies and other expressions of political feeling? And of course, everybody has, many, many people have, and are often very important to especially young people in a college setting. Again, I think as long as they're free of intimidation and don't advocate violence, I don't have any problem with them. Um, and again, I think it's important that the colleges champion speakers who don't agree with each other necessarily at a conference, as opposed to a, um, a recent conference on this, on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict at a Ivy League college, at university at Yale. All the speakers <laughs> were kind of the same side. That's not really, and sponsored by numerous academic departments. 
that's really not consistent with the mission of a university to educate. It is consistent if you think the mission of the university is to advocate. I don't. Uh, and, and each college will have to make you know their own decisions on this. And they right now it's up for conversation. It's very serious conversation taking place at this place, whether those those kind of things are, are appropriate. Sorry. I mean, maybe I could just jump in for one second. I, I yeah. think you know part of the tension that people are feeling right now um, is to what extent is the campus reaction a reaction uh, unique to sort of the hate being spewed towards Jews? Uh, there was an article I read recently in the latest uh, journal, The Sapir, which talked about whether or not uh, Brandeis was justified, or I'm not sure if it was specifically about Brandeis, but it was a larger question about whether or not uh, an organization called the Students for Just Palestine should be allowed to be um, active on campus. And, you know, there's one article you know, arguing that they should not be, and it made all the classic arguments about intimidation and threats and the possibility of violence. But there was another article written by two Jewish authors um, arguing that, you know, ultimately free speech is the most important variable here, but they made a very technical distinction of talking about a difference between, I don't want to oversimplify, but something to the effect of speech whose whole essence uh, is violent, right, and speech which is more of like a rallying call. Right, that if it's explicitly if it's gas the Jews, well, obviously that that's unacceptable. But if it's you know, I don't know, maybe they would say maybe from from the river to the sea, well, that may be a rallying call. And when I was reading the article, and I mentioned to you offline that uh, and I, I studied Talmud professionally, but I'm sensitive to very you know fine distinctions. But when I read this article, I thought to myself, this, this may be a little much. And I was wondering, you know, would universities, especially the contemporary universities, not showing college, but the universities you're describing in the U.S. Would they be open to the same type of uh, very tense, very dense, uh, you know, hair splitting distinctions if it were another minority group? And I don't want to often just default to attributing everything to anti-Semitism, but it, it does feel sometimes that uh, there's a double standard. And I, I think some of the frustration from students on college campuses is that we know that when it comes to other minorities, you know, nothing is acceptable, rightfully so, right? Any language which is even borderline hate speech is, is nullified. Whereas when it comes to Jews, somehow, uh, we can appeal back to very technical legalistic distinctions. I'm, I'm curious, generally, if you sort of feel that there is some of that also, that Jews feel like, well, wait a second, you know, beyond argumentations about very specific applications of hate speech versus free speech, maybe there should just be the same intuition, right, that uh, we have for other minority groups applied to Jews. And even if that means we have to deport some people from MIT or shut down a few clubs, you know, our ultimate goal here is to provide a safe, collegiate space, and therefore Jews should be no different than any other minority group. Well, I don't particularly like the trend over the last 25, 30 years of, of politically correct speech and protecting of, you know, fighting microaggressions, creating safe spaces. I think we've gone way too far. Uh, we can debate whether the motives were good or not, but I think it's had a chilling effect on social, on uh, respectful discourse and civil conversation and in universities. Um, again, I would just emphasize that so much of these challenges comes from the strange idea that colleges are about forming your political views or colleges about you know, deciding uh, which cause you're gonna devote your life to as opposed to getting to know the human heart and uh, trying to understand or master a discipline or two. So I think some of that some of these challenges we're talking about come from the fundamental transformation of the American university from a place of intellectual excellence to a place of uh, 
to too much of a finishing school for young people who are looking for meaning and through politics and other inactivism. Uh, so that's the first thought. The second thought is related to what I said before. Uh, I'm not really sure you want people on your campus who are who hate other people. Now, uh, one way to solve that is to ban them when they ban the groups that they want to form. The other way is not let, not let them in in the first place. Uh, we don't generally care about people's character when we invite people in admissions in the admissions process, but maybe we should pay some attention to that when it's allowed. I will, I will note, by the way, just uh, parenthetically, you know, aside from being a scholar, you're also an educator, and 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 you, you noted that um, character obviously is an important part of sort of the educational paradigm. There's a passage in the Talmud, not in the Bavli, but in the Ushami. The Ushami says that if you study Torah. Uh, with no intention to have it impact you, right? No intention to observe it. So you use this as very sort of hyperbolic formulation, better off that you should not have been created, right? And I think the message there basically is not so much about, you know, what does it mean to be alive, but it really means what does it mean to study? What does it mean to study Torah, right? And if you're going to sort of use ideas and not be impacted by those ideas and not have them transform you. So you have to wonder, like, what is the ultimate purpose of education? Maybe if we could just sort of close with a few uh, questions about the, about um, education. Before um, we do that, before sure. we do that, can I add one more point to our previous? Absolutely. Yeah. But you ask about the, whether the Jews are being treated differently. I think they are. Now you can say, well, it's not, it's complicated. It's really about Israel. It's not really about the Jews and these gas, the Jews and other Jewish pieces to this, the Hamas charter, say, or from the river to the sea is actually a violent ethnic cleansing or extermination uh, plea. You'd say, you know, that's just, it's not really not that bad. Um, but I do think we're treated differently. And we know we're treated differently. And the reason we know it is this war we're in right now. No other nation is treated this way. You know, a number of people have pointed out that when the United States responded to ISIS and destroyed a hospital in Mosul. There weren't marches in the street. Maybe there should have been, but there weren't marches in the street. Or if they were, they were small. When Assad kills Palestinians, when Jordan kills Palestinians, when Palestinians kill Palestinians, there's no marches in the street. So maybe this isn't so much about the savagery of the the alleged savagery of the Israeli military response. It's about the fact that it's a Jewish country that's doing these things. Uh, I think you have to think about that. The way that the BBC talks about, say, the Israeli army. I don't talk about anybody else that way. I don't put demands on uh protecting civilians. Nobody likes civilians being killed anywhere, for sure. But the, the the Talmudic splitting of hairs and international law and so on and, and how the Israeli armies responded. And when the Israeli responds in what ways that seem to me to be somewhat humane, like delivering uh, incubators, as they, I think, actually did today to the Shifa hospital, no one says, wow, that's really impressive. Just like when Israel takes kids out of Gaza and takes them to Israeli hospitals. Israel gets no credit for that. It doesn't, it doesn't enter the calculus. Uh, it does for some people, but for a large group of people, it doesn't. So we are different. I think we have to, as Jews, be aware of that. 
Uh, it would take a remarkable ignorance and blindness to Jewish history to believe that it's just uh, bad luck that we're often treated differently than other people. There is something different about us and how we are perceived, and we should be aware of that. I think that would be wise and prudent. Uh, offline before we started, um, we were talking briefly about uh, an article. I mean, you had heard about it before me, but I read it yesterday in the Free Press about a woman, I, I forgot her name, who was raised Muslim. Um, and eventually she became an atheist. And uh, she was sort of very enamored by uh, atheism, new atheism. She talks in the article about how she was friends with you know Chris Hitchens and all the famous new atheists. And then recently she announced that she was converting to Christianity. And one of the things it talks about in the article um, was the extent to which she felt like secularism, right, wasn't sort of ripe for this moment, right, that she needed something more to deal with uh, the larger questions that are challenging uh, the West, and she needed to have some type of anchor in a religious tradition to be able to sort of make a compelling counter-narrative. Uh, one of the things that really struck me about that piece, aside from the fact that she's, you know, extremely impressive and very articulate, is that a friend of mine on Shabbos mentioned to me that uh, there has been a letter, although I haven't seen it, but I trust him. He said there's been a letter going around from Catholic universities in the U.S. Uh, talking about how they are making taking a pledge to ensure that uh, that Jewish students, you know, feel comfortable at their colleges. Um, as far as I know, there haven't been any major uh, anti-Semitic, you know, it, uh, instances recently at Gonzaga or Villanova or Notre Dame. And uh, it's interesting to me, just in terms of thinking about, like, you know, maybe you know there, there is an element here that uh, there has to be sort of an overarching narrative going on to be able to make sense of these things. And, you know, religious institutions, religious universities, right, they may be more grounded, right, in that overarching narrative. And this may relate to the larger question of, like, what is education all about, right? That maybe for the religious university, character is, is reigns supreme, I don't know. But I know for Yeshivot it does. But I'm curious just as a close in terms of thinking about how these things play out. I mean, what, what is your sense about, um, A, her take that uh, religion right, may have something unique to contribute to this situation. And do you think that, you know, obviously religion is complicated, but do you think that, you know, anchoring identity um, in religion, not necessarily in religious doctrine exclusively, but in religious values will help solve the dilemma of the West? Maybe it will give the moral fortitude, it will anchor the moral fortitude that will allow us to feel more confident, right, in taking these decisions. I'm curious, you know, if you could sort of think, uh, how, would you, how would you sort of navigate the role of religion in this in this moment? That woman is Ayan uh, Hirsa Ali. I think I've got her name correctly. She grew up um, in a Muslim society, uh, struggled with it, and ultimately uh, left and became a proud atheist, as you say, hung out with Christopher Hitchens and others and um, Richard Dawkins, and um, received a lot of death threats. Uh, she she wrote a book called Infidel that I have not read, but I think I will read now about her experiences. And she's a she's a very brave woman. Um, what's fascinating about that decision by her to embrace Christianity is she doesn't know much about Christianity. She says so in the article. Uh, it doesn't know anything about Christian doctrine, right? We don't. That doesn't happen in Judaism, at, at least Orthodox Judaism. You can't say. I'll be an Orthodox Jew. I don't know much about what the rules are, but that seems like a good flavor or a right. hat to wear or right. put on that team jersey. Um, you might see Orthodox Jews and respect their groundedness or their families and decide you'd explore that. But 
you can't just put on that mantle. It's kind of an interesting difference between Judaism and Christianity. But I think her decision and the points that you raise around it are quite profound. Uh, and they certainly force us to grapple with, with the role of education. So there's a really interesting debate that I put my toe in every once in a while about whether the world's coming a better place. And there are a lot of people who think it is. Um, this would be people like Steven Pinker is, is most prominently associated with that view, I'd say. There are many others. And this the argument goes something like this. Oh, around 500 years, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to parody it a little bit. Not parody, I'm going to simplify it to the point of caricature, but it's, I think it's not unfair. Uh, proponents can disagree. We'll see. You know, about 500 years ago, a bunch of people had the courage to realize that God doesn't run the universe. Science does, the laws of science. And Francis Bacon comes along in the 1500s and he invents the scientific method. And once that happens, everything takes off. We get physics eventually, we get biology, we get chemistry, we get engineering, we get a smartphone, you name it, ways. It's all good. Longer lives, higher standards of living, less disease, better pharmaceuticals, better medical equipment. We understand surgery, understand the human body, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm a big fan of that view. I don't agree with it in total, as I'll make clear, but it's a good point. There's a lot of truth to that. Uh, but the argument there is that we left behind the superstition of religion and embraced what would be called, is typically called the Enlightenment which is, of course, meaning we're not just smarter and, and have better toys. We're enlightened. We know that there is no God, according to this view, and we have a technique for human improvement. So that view is interesting. Um, I, I When I discuss that argument with people on my podcast, I will often say, you know, it's an interesting view. I guess my counterpoint would be the 20th century, when maybe a hundred million people were murdered, uh, not just in primitive places, but in some of the most educated places. Germany, the seat of the great universities of Europe, really has had a bad track record in the 20th century. The Soviet Union, the Russia, which was the home of Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and Tchaikovsky, the great art and educational uh, enlightened people, that had a dark time through the gulag and other things. So it's kind of hard to argue that human beings are finding better and better ways to organize themselves. Yes, there are many good things. We're more tolerant. There's less violence of certain kinds, at least for now. But now October 7th happens. You're really, you're really going to argue that, that the world's just getting better and better? The savagery, the brutality, the cruelty, the glee with which it was executed is, I think it's a very sobering moment. Now, of course, these were not PhD students, but many of their defenders are PhD students. A lot of the people who have stood up and glorified their actions are highly educated people, just as they were in Nazi Germany, right? Heidegger, one of the great philosophers of the 20th century, was a Nazi, not like you know, it wasn't so friendly to Jews. He was a Nazi. So I think we have to be thoughtful, and I don't think it's open and shut about the role of education. I like to believe, especially as a president of a college that emphasizes 
you know, great classical Western and Jewish texts, that understanding these texts and basing them and understanding how they created the world we live in is very important. But I do think you have to have some weight on character. And the Enlightenment, not so good at that. And our public schools and our educational system, not so good at that. In fact, explicitly is uncomfortable uh, dictating what is ethical and what is not ethical in many ways. So I think that world is going to face a reckoning. It's facing it now. Um, and um, and I, I think those of us who still embrace the power of education have to confront the reality that by itself, it might be a little bit like that example you gave earlier of the person who learns Torah without uh, an explicit goal of becoming a better human being, of internalizing it, of getting closer to God. Um, so when I see someone like I and Hersa Ali um, embracing religion, I think what she's saying, and of course religion's not not a total uh, slam dunk for for a historical record of of bringing about a better world. All religions have struggled with extremism, and and a dark piece to them. But when she said, "I'm embracing Christianity," I think what she was saying is it wasn't about who her who her savior was. And it wasn't about that somebody allegedly rose from the dead three days after that person was put in the tomb, but rather she was saying, you know, this current project that I've embraced, that all educated people embrace, that says God is dead and we've replaced God with science, I don't think that's a good road. And I think she's onto something there. And I think we all have to face it. Well, Russ, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, it was, as always, enlightening, and it's an incredible opportunity for me to be able to talk to you and to pick your brain on all these different topics. I could just say personally that, you know, I'm new to the podcast world. I feel like I'm like talking to like the LeBron James of, uh, of, of podcasting, or if you're a little older, maybe the Michael Jordan of podcasting. So it's a very uh, humbling experience for a young podcaster to be able to actually dialogue with you. So again, I want to thank you so much. And I look forward to uh, having you back on the Sarah Human Podcast. It was a great conversation. Thank you, Rev. David. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed listening to this episode of Tzarech Iyun, please share it with others. Also, might appreciate being part of this conversation. If you haven't yet, please rate, review. And of course, don't hesitate to be in touch with any questions, comments, and topic suggestions at oraitapodcast at gmail.com. This is Tzarech Iyun, a podcast of Yeshivat Oraita. <laughs>